Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 465 with my guest, Gobby Dixon. I'm Paul Gilmartin. <laughs> I don't know why I drew my name on. I'm Paul Gilmartin. Come on down to the mental illness happy hour. Oh, it's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling because I'm not a therapist. I'm a former stand-up comedian, former TV host, current jackass. Uh, I really like today's interview with Gobby. Um, we touched on a lot of things that, uh, I had questions about, um, things that I didn't have questions about that, but just turned light bulbs on in my head, helped me become, uh, more informed. And I just really enjoy it. And I hope you enjoy it too. And we have some good surveys too. Uh, a couple of thoughts this week. I was talking with somebody, um, who was having kind of an embroiled, embattled, I don't know what word you want to use, friendship with somebody. And the person that they are having a difficult time with has had difficult times with a lot of other people. And they've been cut out of people's lives. And my friend was saying to me, um, he had he stood up for himself with this kind of toxic person. And the toxic person doesn't drink, doesn't do drugs, but grew up in a family that, where there was a lot of that. And a lot of times, kind of the classic example of that is that person's drug becomes control. And and I was thinking about codependency and, you know, there's no DUI for people who are toxic and stuck in their codependence and trying to control people and situations. Their DUIs are generally losing jobs, being cut out of people's lives, 
feeling isolated, being angry, and kind of being stuck in, in victim mode. Um, it's so much harder to recognize for some people than people who have outward addictions. There's such a seductive quality to viewing ourselves as victims. And I think it's especially difficult when we have in the past been legitimate victims of things, especially things that happened in childhood. And the difficulty and the path forward, at least in my experience, has been to separate where I was actually victimized and to process that and to let the feelings out. And if need need be, confront that person, not necessarily um, necessary in my opinion. And the other part is to then say, okay, now what's my responsibility moving forward? My responsibility is to myself and to those people that I'm in a relationship with, be it friends or romantic partners, to heal and to try to grow and be a partner or a friend or a coworker with those other people. Because it's very easy to get stuck in victim mode and say, well, you know, I'm only drinking because I had a tough childhood or I snapped at that person because I had a tough childhood. Well, maybe some of that may be true, but now that you know that you had a tough childhood, the responsibility is on you, I should say us, to work through that and to grow. And there, there, there is a, there can almost be a high sometimes because I think sometimes, and I found myself doing this, using the fact that I was victimized almost to seduce people emotionally, to get them to, uh, to, to want to elicit some type of comforting feeling out of them, some type of, of empathy. And while I think it's healthy and natural to want others to empathize with our pain, the way being stuck in a victim mentality is not the way to do it. It's, I hope all of that makes sense. And um, it's, it's, it's so complicated. I think that's why I'm having trouble putting it, it into uh, into words. But this is a happy moment filled out by a trans woman who calls herself less egos, more amigos. And she writes, uh, happy moment number one. Last Friday, I was at the bus stop with my mom and this beautiful, small beagle doggy came up to me like we already knew each other. I reached my hand out, petted softly and gave head scratches. Doggy loved it and then continued walking with their oni. owner. Oni. <laughs> No, I want a beagle just to pat, scratch, love, feed, and live harmoniously with my cat, Ellie. Happy moment number two. A few nights ago, I'm crying because feelings in blur, and my cat, Ellie, scratches on my bedroom door. I open it. Ellie meows, rubs up on my leg, keeps meowing, looks up at me, then jumps on my bed, and I turn off my light, turn on my fan, get into bed, and Ellie curls up next to me, purrs, and in 10 minutes, I'm sound asleep. I told Ellie I love her, gave her a kiss and a treat, then fell asleep. Woke up hours later. Where's Ellie? Right there. Still curled up like the goddamn angel she is. 
I love you more than you'll ever know, Ellie. My, my dog, Gracie, is part goddamn angel. She is, she's half goddamn angel, half fucking princess. And a lot of people can't tell the difference between goddamn angel and fucking princess. And what you have to do is you have to part the fur on their head and fucking princesses will often have a very, very tiny tiara in there. And a lot of times too, if, uh, a fucking princess will have a submissive dog as their butler following them around and doing things. Whereas a goddamn angel, it's so clear because they got the wings. And end of riff. Our sponsor for today is BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, I really recommend checking it out. And I recommend doing it with BetterHelp.com because uh, they go through a lengthy process vetting their therapists and their interface is great. That's right. I just used the word interface. Um, it's just really well thought out. And I've gotten a lot out of the two plus years that I've been seeing my counselor online every week. So if you're interested in checking out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. Then just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor if they feel that they have one who's a good fit for you. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is a good fit for you. And you need to be over 18. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And then uh, one more survey before we get to the, the interview with Gobby. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Chubby Charles Sherman. And she writes, I'm at this elementary school swim meet with my uncle and cousins. It's kickoff time and everyone has to stand for the national anthem. 
It's this poor, lone kid on his trombone, and by God, it's an eager sore. What his homage lacks in patriotism, it makes up for in earnest gusto. He huffs and puffs away, dragging it out, every wobbling missed note pushing the crowd closer to the brink. My cousins and I make eye contact. Our eyes are watering, and we're clutching our stomachs to quell the spasms. Another off-key screech. I feel the laughter coming. I'm fighting so hard to keep it together. My uncle, sensing the direness of the situation, knows he has to do something fast. He blurts out, Think of dead people. What better tactic than call to mind the bloody sacrifice of millions of brave Americans since our nation's conception? That is, unless you're dealing with a 50-plus crowd of asshole preteens and their sunburnt, day-drunk parents. It backfires spectacularly. Everyone within earshot doubles over in uncontrollable hoots and guffaws. Then it spreads until eventually what looks like the entire crowd is paralyzed in a collective fit of all-consuming laughter, all except the soloist, whose trombone keeps droning on in the background like a howitzer pointed in the wrong direction, presumably up until the very last note. Presumably, I don't think anyone heard. God bless America. Nobody's Nobody's cool cool and everyone's scared. scared. And we're just all in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. Wow. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I am here with Gabby I pronounced that correctly. Yes, Gabby it. D- Dixon, uh, and they got a hold of me via email a couple of months ago, and we yeah. said, that, "Well, the next time uh, you're in LA, let's sit down to record because uh, I, we have some interesting stuff to talk about." You identify as non-binary. You were raised in the South. You're uh, a Second City performer. Yeah. You got a, a web series out there called Centered, which is uh, very well done. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you watched it. Yeah, the the one I, I just watched the pilot, but the the one that made me laugh is uh, is where you sounded surprised about uh, how much uh, insurance was going to cost you or something like that. And, oh, and, yeah. And, and you said, I have insurance? Yeah. It's such an American thing. That, it's such a Chicago thing, too, yeah. you know, just not knowing. <laughs> like that uh, that Chicago sketch where they they interrogate somebody and they say, uh, who is your congressman? And they go, I don't know. And they went, okay, you're from Illinois. <laughs> that sounds like a classic Second City blackout scene. Yeah, definitely. So where do we uh, where do we start? You're how old? Uh, I'm 29. Uh, two and a half years sober now, and I—I I, congrats. Thank you. Um, congrats to you. I feel like we should always say that to each other. 
Um, and I feel like I'm just now kind of understanding humility. Um, I, d- I did that web series um, pretty newly sober. Um, uh, and I just now feel like, you know, okay, you can reel it back a little bit on announcing that you're sober, you know, and talking mm-hmm. about it a little bit too much, maybe. Don't we all do that, though? It, it's oh, like yeah. I, it, that and when I uh, first discovered that meds could work for me, oh. I just I suppose some of it was hypomania as well. But uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's 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 well, when you go to meetings or if you're going to therapy um, and you're newly sober, they're asking you to examine yourself. So you are thinking a lot about yourself. Um, and you just end up talking about yourself a lot, which I feel like I did, (laughs) but here I am doing it again. But, um, yeah, I was so excited to, um, uh, come here and talk to you because I remember just seeing you on TV on, uh, dinner and a movie, which I loved. You were an infant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty young. Maybe, maybe was playing with toys on the carpet. I don't know. And remind me again, you you said you're how old? Uh, 29. 29. Yeah. Um, so where do where do we start? Chattanooga, Tennessee. I am from uh, the suburbs outside of Chattanooga. I'll call I call it like the country suburbs. You know, mm-hmm. not quite the country, but um, yeah, I uh, got pretty lucky. I, my parents are um, very with it, very um, liberal. My mom's kind of a, a self realized feminist, um, and I really have her to thank. You know, for um, kind of coming into my own after getting sober a little bit. Um, I uh, really early on, I going to the gender thing, I, uh, as a kid, I expressed, um, you know, I would come up to my mom and be like, you know, I feel like I, God put me in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. And the way she handled it was astounding for uh, where she came from. So I have her to thank for, uh, being so supportive through the years, but um, and how did she respond when you said that? Um, well, you know, she was like, "Okay, <laughs> okay," and then uh, let me dress how I wanted to dress, which was short hair, boys' clothing, and eventually she did take me to a child psychiatrist, um, where she let me talk to him alone, which I think was probably a good call because I was it was very embarrassing talking about how different I was. I mean, in the South, it's the gender roles are so polarized, um, especially in the nineties, um, or just now (laughs) still. Um, and you know, this doctor, he, he explained to me, you know, well, there are people that are like you and they're called, uh, trans people. And, um, you know, transitioning is a thing and it was a lot to hear and you were how old at that point um uh you were three <laughs> i was about 10 i'd say um yeah i was i was two talking um uh i don't and, feel right in this onesie yeah <laughs> um yeah i'd prefer the blue onesie over the pink onesie um but you know he's like he's like i do want to say you know at your age uh it to put you on like hormone blockers or, or, you know, that's a very big step because there's a possibility that you could change your mind in the future. Um, and when I tell friends this, uh, sometimes they're like, Oh gosh, I wish he hadn't said that. But I, I, I really 
think that that was as a kid it allowed me to kind of weigh my options and he wasn't really telling me not to do anything or make any decisions but um I'm kind of glad that he he talked me through that a little bit and I did decide to kind of hold off on fully transitioning um because you know I've come to realize especially after um getting sober and everything I'm I'm very much in between you know I I I'm not a male or female you know and that's kind of always how I've been um but uh my teen years were definitely a beast um so I give me some snapshots um I did a 180 um around puberty so so my body started changing and then I thought you know well god I guess I have to be more um effeminate and dress um so that guys will look at me because at this point it didn't really have much to do with sexuality although I mean <laughs> you could look at me and be like this kid's going to be pretty queer um but uh I, going into like 12 13 years old um was rough I we had a, a pretty major f death in the family um and I actually around that I think I kind of was like you know what I don't want to stress my family out with you know questioning who I am and I think that kind of helped me be like you know what I'm just gonna dress in Hollister you know striped polos that are pink or whatever kind of like my classmates um and then you know instantly and it probably because of genetics and hormones, um, that's when I started having a lot of like suicidal ideation, um, a lot of depression set in. Do you, do you think that was related to uh, j tamping down your authenticity? I, I think it, it was, and I think my mind did an incredible job of subconsciously, um, you know, saying, uh, no, let's go this direction because I think it's just going to be impossible for you to keep, keep being this like tomboy or, or whatever you are to have, to have a, it's going to be a shittier road, but a less bumpy road. Exactly. Then. Like you might as well just swallow it. And, and, you know, because having other kids come up to you, um, being like, what are you, you know, or, or even like, which is a great icebreaker. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. What, what is you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sorry. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, what's your deal? Yeah. Wh who the hell do you think you are to express yourself? Um, yeah, I think it got tiring and I, I almost, I almost envy kids who, are like, I'm going to do what I want, you know, which is um, incredible. I Especially in childhood or especially. adolescence. I mean, my God, that's that, inconceivable to me during my time. I, I was afraid to wear the wrong band t-shirt that, that somebody would look at me the wrong way. Absolutely. It, it was, it's so horrifying and it's so magnified in your adolescence and um, especially when you're reaching that period of like who are you sexually attracted to it gets even more confusing 
Um, was there a tamping down of that as well, or, or was it just an area that was just gray and unknown? Um, or did you just try not to think about it? Um, or something else? Sexual, I, you know, I pushed myself um, to try to like guys. I put my put myself in some honestly kind of risky situations and pushed myself to uh, see if I could I could like guys. But um, it's amazing what the brain can do to really trick yourself into thinking, oh no, this is absolutely what I want. Because um, too, also once you get going, there's also physical pleasure sometimes even when something isn't authentic to who we are there may not be that emotional spark yeah of feeling connection but there's the the body is still responding as if uh you know all systems go yeah for for some reason i have a lot of friends that kind of did the same thing and had sexual relationships with with guys throughout high school and stuff and um i i I did, I, you know, I had sex with a guy once <laughs> mm -hmm. and, um, it was just kind of like, I was like, meh. And I was like, okay, this, surely this has to feel better and I have to be more into this, you know? Um, nice job blaming yourself. <laughs> That's just good, <laughs> solid work. And I said, oh, well, surely it's something with me, you know, yes. like, um, but, uh, doing around, around 12 or 13 was, um, rough i i spent some time in a um a hospital for a bit i had a, a weird um health issue that couldn't really be diagnosed um uh, and i did end up overdosing on some hydro hydrocodone i had been prescribed as like a 12 year old which kind of thinking back i'm like that's pretty intense i'm like you could have just given me some strong advil probably right. um for you know post surgery but um yeah go that hospital was if you don't think our healthcare system needs some sort of help just like take a visit to a, a acute adolescence unit in a hospital it was i mean there were I, I got a room but there were kids sleeping on kids my age which this is 12 13 and when you say acute does that mean that there's uh, some type of psychiatric issue going on yes i okay. yeah a lot of the kids in that unit were or just it's filled with adorable kids it's we're giggling laughing mm -hmm. you know eating candy a lot of a great time a lot of uh, funny you say that there was a room it was like the isolation room you know if people mm -hmm. are acting up and it was painted with like clouds but it was like padded it was just oh uh, it was just everything about it this place was a nightmare every time i tell a therapist about it a new you know if i go to a new therapist they immediately start cringing because they like without me saying it they know it was probably terrible these yeah. um facilities have a tendency to treat teenagers like they're already in juvie you know rather than uh really concentrating on their mental health like and they why. did something wrong and then there's there's almost like a criminal aspect to uh exactly yeah exactly like um the you know the fact that a patient's cutting themselves is because they um you know want attention or or um are just misbehaving you know it 
That was their attitude. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I thought you were saying it. I was like, okay. oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're going to have to uh, Let's backtrack a uh, go little down bit. a little side path here while I express my <laughs> thoughts on that. <laughs> um, no, that was, uh, I mean, the people kind of running the facility were definitely phoning it in a bit. Yeah. Um, Which uh, is sadly all too common. And I, I don't know if it's that they need to, to work less hours or find another job. Or maybe they came in idealistic and their battery was charged, but it just seems, uh, well, you, you know, my, my thought is like people that work in, in rehabs, I, I don't think I could last more than six months. I and, and I would just be tired of saying the same thing to the same person with the same issue. And, but I'd like to think that I would say, hey, I'm getting burned out. These people deserve more compassion and attention than I can give. Absolutely. Some, and the, these people really did seem burned out. But when I, I did uh, go to a clinic to get sober as an adult, you know, two and a half years ago, and there were people in there who were great uh, counselors and uh, people just kind of running um, you know, the night shifts or whatever, who, uh, a lot of them in recovery. Um, and that was kind of how they stayed sober was helping, uh, people who were getting sober and, uh, just telling their stories over and over again and kind of running meetings. And, um, so that was, a just two very different experiences. Yeah. Uh, so give me some snapshots from the, uh, adolescent. Well, I, there were kids sleeping on mattresses in the hallway. Um, and I don't, I can't remember. Yeah. And I can't remember if, uh, it was because they had been aggressive or if there weren't as many beds. Um, there were a lot of kids that, um, had home lives that you knew had kind of driven them to, um, probably some of their issues but a lot of a lot of just people with issues like I had just severe depression uh, a lot of suicidal thoughts um but and was your uh, overdose accidental uh n no it was um I had I remember being outside playing tag with these neighborhood kids and I just sat there uh in my hiding spot <laughs> and was like I feel so fucking dead and I this I know this will never get better. So I just went inside and um I took I can't remember if I'd been thinking about it, but I I took essentially the the whole bottle of hydrocodone. I think I had uh kind of like maybe hidden the bottle, um which is pretty typical of someone who's mulling over uh you know, some suicidal thoughts, I guess. And, uh, it, so it wasn't an accident. Um, I, my poor dad, I just, I've never seen his, his walls come down like that, but I just remember him, you know, kind of cradling me and, and, you know, he was like my baby, my baby. And, um, I've never seen him like that. And it, that image is, you know, sometimes when I've got, when I had bad nights when I was drinking, I, you know, I could remember how upset it would make them if, you know, I wasn't here. So I do have them to thank, you know, for, um, just being such good parents, uh, which. 
That's such a striking image that, I mean, my God. Yeah, just this, this, you know, very gentle Southern man, but definitely, uh, I'd never seen him, you know, kind of break like that. And, um, you know, they, I went to the hospital and they had my stomach pumped and I do remember this and this made me very angry. There was a nurse. How, how old were you? I was about 12 or 13, uh, and maybe 13 going on, on 14. But, um, I, it made me so mad in the, in the ER when, um, they were pumping my stomach, you know, they have you like swallow the tube and everything. Uh, a nurse was like, you know, well, why did you do this, honey? You know, um, and I was like, I don't know. Cause I didn't know. I didn't know why I was so unhappy. Um, and, uh, I said, I, I don't know. I just thought maybe this would be temporary. And I, you know, who knows why I said that as a kid. And she said, well, this isn't temporary. Like, and was scolding me, you know, and I just, uh, i the whole mental health experience down there was very, um, just very negative. It sounds uh, very condescending. Very much so. You're, I think pe- a lot of people with, and, me- and I don't think that's limited to the South. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I agree. It, um, definitely Chicago going to some offices there. It's been, um, awful the way that some doctors will treat you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you've had that experience as well. Just, they see you as being kind of a, a fuck up rather than someone who needs help. The first psychiatrist I ever went to, I just spilled my guts about my suicidal ideation and feeling dead inside. And, and she was jotting her notes down on a pad and I don't think she saw could see that I could see what she was oh, doing, no. but she rolled her eyes. Oh my God. And I just remember thinking, wow, I just made a psychiatrist roll their eyes. Like this guy's either fucked up or, or, you know, shouldn't be here. I don't know what it was, but I just remember feeling kind of validated, but also kind of <laughs> pissed off. Like you shouldn't roll your eyes at somebody. I, it, it's upsetting to think that therapists will uh, start start putting patients on like a pyramid of like what's uh, what is actually bad or not, you know, or like, or, you know, or, you know, you're being dramatic or, you know, and sometimes you can read it on their face. I did have a, a therapist once who um, s- s- just, I, I think I was a teenager, but she just like opened a drawer and like pulled out a bag of chips and was opening the chips and just like eating, making all this noise while I'm like, no, I'm not gay. You know, like, Oh my God. um, Which granted she was pregnant. I cannot, I cannot blame her. That's not an excuse. (laughs) (laughs) You're enabling her. Um, if you could get in a time machine and go back to 13 year old, you that week that you were feeling all of that stuff, what would you do or say how would you spend the week with your your younger self oh god (laughs) um it's i would say and it sounds cliche but it's not always going to feel like this and you know i would tell 
that kid, you know, you're going to reach a place where you feel good in your own body and you're going to, you're going to feel solid with your own identity. Um, and you're not going to feel like this and, you know, you're going to be able to love, you're going to have romantic relationships, you know, your relationships with your parents is going to be great. Um, it's interesting you asked that question because I, in, um, rehab, they, you know, asked some of us to write a, uh, letter to ourselves as an, as an adolescent. And, um, I think I would, I, the word my therapist was really gra- glad that I used was, uh, that I grieve for that kid. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing that I think a lot of addicts, um, could benefit from getting to is just, it's, it's okay to feel sorry for that kid. Um, and just kind of grieve, grieve who that child was. Um, you know, the fact that that child was a social pariah, um, and, uh, you know, that you're going to have a, a, a bumpy road, but going to have like a fighting fucking spirit, which I think is kind of helped me, uh, in my day to day. And what do you think younger you might've said or felt? Oh God. Just to see someone like me now back then, uh, would have been so beneficial. I didn't meet another out person until I was in college. Um, Wow. Even wow. Yeah, even on even on TV. I mean, if you've I don't know if you've watched Euphoria on HBO. I watched the pilot and oh. I just couldn't get into it cuz I just uh I I felt too old watching it like Yeah, you you do almost feel like you're intruding on these teens lives mm-hmm. a little bit. Uh it's also very triggering um I think for many people but there's uh an episode where a you know a trans character as a kid is checked into a facility um and i was like i can't believe i'm watching this right now this is exactly what i went through really and yeah it, but that hospital was nice the one on the on oh, the show really? was and that's what yeah. i thought was that's a nice ass hospital compared to the one um that, that was that was, was the in. only part of it that i liked was that the the non-binary part of it but all of the drinking and drugging it felt like i was just in a time machine back in high school and it's like i've been there i've experienced this and it's just boring to me <laughs> so if there had been, been there done that yeah if there had been much less of of the partying the mm-hmm. kids partying i think uh, it would have grabbed me but it just felt like so much of just watching teenagers get high and it's like i've done that yeah that pilot episode in particular was a there was like a lot of partying to set up like this insane world and then like the episodes uh the following episodes had a lot of backstory for these teens that are is like very um the writing is so well done for the backstories of these kids it's very believable and uh i was so Seeing a character represented like that, the uh, Jules, I think is the name of the character, that would have been such a huge thing, uh, seeing that as a kid. Uh, I mean, I can't I can't really think of anything um, on TV that I could really identify with. And was Jules the, the trans kid that yes, uh, Ju- hooked up with the, 
the father. The, yes. The, her friend's yes. father. Oh, my gosh. What a, that was quite a cliffhanger at the end ooh, of the first episode. Yes. That was... Yes. Um, well, maybe I should give it, give it another shot. I did the same thing with Game of Thrones. I watched the oh, pilot, I, and I was like, yeah, it's kind of interesting. And, <laughs> and I... And I quit and then my friend said give it another shot and i i'm glad i did game of thrones is also something i i keep going back to and then i lose interest i did i watched like the first three seasons on i did a, a cruise ship improv with i did a contract with second city and um, Boy, that's when you should have killed yourself which i <laughs> let me tell you paul i did i drank so much on that ship i not when i was performing but um, I was definitely, you know, pr- probably agitated until I could drink and, uh, cause there was literally nothing to do. Yeah. You are stuck in a cabin and it's just like, uh, how were the audiences? Um, it was like, we had a lot of like Boston suburbs, you know, Oh, I was on during the election. So they were chanting locker up as like a suggestion. Oh my like, can God. We get a, can we get a suggestion of a location? Lock her up, lock her up. It was just, it was wild, but wow. The Canada route, we did a Canada route and they were much more, um, like it, it felt much more into the political stuff, but also very sleepy. Because <laughs> I've had friends that have done stand up on cruise ships and sometimes the constraints are like, could you not say hell? Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's always the thrillusionist you can go and see. <laughs> But they want you to be raunchier, but I think a lot of cruise ships, they are supposed to be like family friendly. They don't want to get letters. Oh, yeah. That's amazing <laughs> how, much of our, emails. how much of our culture is formed by somebody's aversion to letters <laughs> or emails now. Written letters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah strongly worded emails. Um, it's, it's a very interesting culture, those cruise ships. Have you been on one? I have never. That's wild. Never, never been on a, a ship. There's part of me that really wants to, and there's a part of me that really doesn't want to. But if it was like a day that you could experience, I will. I will say drinking is part of the culture on it. You know, um, which can is probably very triggering for a lot of people. But I, I believe I cut you off too. Uh, you with the uh, boy. You should have killed yourself. Then you said uh, I was on a cruise ship. Uh, oh. Um, Oh, we were just talking about euphoria. Oh, okay. Um, and so that that was that. Uh, I don't remember where lit we lit the fire under your addict. Oh, I I I had some really strong alcohol cravings watching that show. I probably should have spaced it out, <laughs> yeah. but I definitely um, binged it. No, yeah the the main thing was um, uh. If I if I was you know twelve thirteen and and I s- had access to seeing uh, characters like that represented in m- the media, which I've always loved movie and TV, you know, and it has, it really does have such a huge impact. Huge. Um, and I, it, I think it would have been a game changer. Um, I truly thought I was the only person who felt this way who felt you know that they were not male or female you know the irony is your parents probably wouldn't have let you watch uh an r-rated show on hbo no definitely not i yeah i'm not convinced that's for teens and yeah it's just rough i mean are are these kids doing this like god i hope not i mean and that's so meta that the very subject you need to reach the kids are so heavy yeah that most even reasonable parents yeah 
and an all in one all in one show just it, it's like all the friends are are have come from such fucked up backgrounds right. it's all condensed yeah. but i think if you if if somebody watched it with their parents maybe that would be i don't know yeah i don't know, know what i'm all of a sudden i'm the head of a studio what the <laughs> fuck <laughs> um but uh Going going back to the, to the cruise ship, actually, uh, after I did that contract is when I got sober. Um, and uh, kind of going through that, I've only two and a half years in, I've started really being comfortable with like my body um, and thinking more about my gender again. Um, I've always kind of been androgynous in my adulthood, but didn't really know what it meant you know is there a discomfort in not being more specific about your gender are you okay with it you know i just being trans um you know or non-binary what 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 i is there any terminology that you're more or less comfortable with i lean more towards non-binary because um I don't really see myself as transitioning towards one way or right. the other. Um, I just, it feels like I've just always existed in this middle space, but my, and my body doesn't quite fit how I see myself. Um, how do you see yourself? Um, I mean, I hate the word penis envy, <laughs> mm-hmm. but as a kid, I always wanted to pee standing up doesn't necessarily mean I want like a, a penis. I feel like penis envy is a term that probably a dude, a uh, straight dude came up with <laughs> after uh, some hot lesbian stole his girlfriend. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it's hard. That's a hard question to answer because I feel like I almost lead with my hips when typically you know women will lead with their chest or whatever like i it's so hard to describe i really do feel um and maybe maybe i like haven't come to really understand that as well you know i have an episode that uh it's it's not available anymore but i'll uh give it to you um and it it's with uh a person who was born female bodied and the the episode with him is is really great because he talks about not having a penis and whenever he's having sex Im- not only imagining that there's a, a a penis there but it feeling like there is one like it's it, like, almost like a phantom limb yeah i can i can identify with that absolutely and you know what's interesting is um, this isn't the greatest repre- representation, but uh, the Danish girl movie with mm-hmm. Eddie Redmayne has phantom cramps from, that's what that reminds me of is, mm-hmm. um, you know, he transitioned into, into a female um, and has those phantom cramps. And I can absolutely identify with that. There's a lot um of kind of dysphoria I still feel during sex that um, I 
I haven't figured out, I haven't been with like a, a long-term partner in quite a bit. So I haven't been able to kind of explore that while wow, really getting, <laughs> getting into it here. Um, but, uh, it takes some exploring when your body doesn't quite match how you feel and what you like. It's very interesting. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, when the first time I ever used a strap on, I was like, oh, this is like, this is me. This is it. <laughs> I love this. Like, um, which, uh, and the, the second I put it on, it wasn't even using it on someone, you know, it was, um, that feeling of, of having that limb, uh, made me feel so sexy and so confident. Um, I remember going to a live Peter Pan uh, show in Chattanooga where I'm from as a kid and I stole a pair of my brother's underwear which was like the, you know the thick band has a pee hole um, and I mm. stole them uh, and I wore them and I was like hell yeah and I mean I was like eight nine and I was like no one knows I have this on this feels amazing uh, I had them on under my jeans and then my zipper got stuck. I had to go to my mom and I was like, can you get my zipper up? And she's like, are you wearing your brother's underwear? <laughs> I was like, yeah. and, um, and was it the tactile sensation or just the idea of it? Um, I think it was both. It was the thickness, um, of just like them being red with power Rangers on it probably or something like that. Um, and then the idea of, I am, I'm not in female fruit of the loom right now, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm in something else and this feels much better. I can't imagine what a drought it must feel like to not be able to claim any of the authenticity that you feel is in your core when you're a kid and you're and you're getting a sense of who you are oh, in the world it it must be a morsel must feel like a banquet yes and i i think one of the hardest things for a kid is constantly being questioned about your identity why why you want to dress a certain way when you don't even know you know right. um and kids with parents uh who are punished for that. It's so damaging to their psyche. Like, um, especially if you throw religion in the mix. Oh yes. I, you know, I've had friends, uh, I had a friend tell me he woke his mother up in the middle of the night at, you know, he was like six and was like, you know, I think I'm, I want to be a, you know, a woman. Cause as a kid, you, you inherently know what you want and what you kind of feel. And you, you gravitate towards that. Oh, some kids, you know, mm -hmm. and his mom, um, you know, right there in the middle of the bedroom made him get down on his knees and start praying. And I think he was also sent to that same friend was sent to conversion therapy, um, which is just what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> um, what the fuck? Just so damaging. Um, but I am just so am amazed at the kids these days who have their parents help um, kind of transitioning at an earlier age. Um, I mean, 
I don't know what's go- really going. I don't know what the deal with Shiloh Jolie Pitt is, but I think it's incredible that you know their parents let them dress. However, you know mm-hmm. it's uh, I really respect parents like that. Um, my parents were uh, wonderful, just terrified for me. I think. Yeah. Um, absolutely. As I terrified. think any loving parent would be. Yes. And that must be a hard line to ride because you want your child to experience freedom, but you also don't want to see them experience torture and how do you know if you've never done it before you've never guided a child through this exactly where the pitfalls are and uh, where the resources for uh, a parent i suppose in uh, a therapist that specializes in uh, lgbtq uh, kids yeah which which i think is becoming more and more accessible now i believe um I don't know. I don't know. In Tennessee, maybe Nashville, there were probably mm-hmm. uh, some. Um, it it's amazing. Um, people are going to school now just for that. Um, I have a friend who's uh, gonna go in and, and concentrate a little bit more on gender studies and counseling and that kind of field, and um, especially with adolescents, it's very hard to guide someone who's still really developing and trying to figure themselves out. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, I still feel a lot of shame for, for doing a 180 during like my teen years, my high school years, and really trying to be this more feminine kid that was trying to figure things out. But I still feel like embarrassed about it um you need to have a bunch of people send you their high school photos (laughs) (laughs) that's very true because i think we all look back and cringe at how we presented ourselves you know nothing to do with gender although i'm sure there are many but um in yours as i suppose a lot of ours was was about survival or what we perceived we needed to do to survive yes uh that that shocks me to to hear that shame would be your emotion rather than grief. Yeah, I. I've, so nice job in hating yourself. Yeah. Uh, oh, let me tell you about it. Yeah, I. Uh, uh, truly, those high school years, I hated myself so much. Um, I don't know. I. I don't know why I look back at that time and I still. I was in, you know, a closeted relationship for three years in high school with this other girl at this tiny, tiny Christian school I went to. Um, It was kind of a Southern Baptist high school, incredibly small. We had, I think in my class, maybe 30 people. Um, And I think I just feel so much shame. Um because that was a very toxic relationship when you've got two kids who are who kind of love each other but are but hate themselves for it you know because of what their parents will think or or other people it's like a heteronormative relationship has a shitload of baggage to begin with and then you throw in all that other stuff on top of it holy shit yeah. How can there not be drama, <laughs> whether it's internal or external? Yeah, absolutely. Was was most of that drama internal or external for you? 
it was very internal, but of course developed into a pretty tumultuous uh, kind of uh, emotionally uh, manipulative relationship. Um, probably more so on my end, you know, um, just because I, I hated myself so much for being gay um, at the time that I, it, I turned kind of angry, you know, of course. I mean, um, but it, it was very much internal. I was miserable. Were you angry at yourself? Were you angry at, uh, did she identify as female? Yes. Were you angry at her for loving you, for being attracted to you? Yeah, I think that was definitely part of it. I I had animosity for her that was totally unwarranted, you know? Um, I, I relate to that. I, in high school, uh, the first girlfriend I, I had was, we were at a party and I'd lost my virginity to to her, and she was just smiling at me, and I felt rage, and I said, what the fuck are you smiling at? Oh. And it's like the words came out of my mouth, and I didn't know. I, I could, wouldn't understand it for probably decades mm -hmm. that I hated somebody for loving me. Like, I had no respect for them, yeah. and I wonder if something similar was was at work with you or you know don't let me put words in your mouth but i, I guess no. i say all that to to say i think it's more common than than you think it is yeah no you've kind of given me a little bit of realization that's probably why i do identify shame with that time period um is uh and i haven't understood it for all these years you know so um i think a lot of people could probably yeah has have moments like that where it was definitely themselves being insecure, you know? Um, yeah, it's just, um, weird to just think about the, where you were 15 years ago and where you are now mm -hmm. or when, when you were a kid, it's just been a very interesting journey. What would you say if, if, if you could talk to a gymnasium full of, kids that don't know where they don't know how to find the words to what they feel inside and, and, and who they are. And it might be that they're trans. It might be that they're queer, non-binary or gay or what, whatever it is there. They don't fit into the box. What would you, what would you say to these kids? Gosh, I, I feel like I would say, you can talk to someone seriously you can i think that most teenagers need to be going to therapy um but i also would probably tell these kids listen to what your gut's telling you um how how are you responding to things that you're hearing and don't let it turn into being unkind to each other because I think it that's what happens the teenagers are so mean because they're feeling all of this stuff inside that they can't make sense of and do some really cruel shit um, because they feel uncomfortable you know I I wish I could go back and I mean I feel I still probably have like so much blocked um, from my school years but I I mean, I remember the 
one time going to, as a kid, going to a bathroom. Um, and this memory only came to light after I, I actually in, in rehab, after I detox, I had all these memories come flooding back from a, uh, childhood because I mean, I'm sure, you know, once you've become so good at muffling the present through alcohol or whatever, you kind of start forgetting some of the real toxic or the traumatic stuff that you need to be working through. Mm -hmm. Um, and you feel it when you're not numb. Memories take on a different weight that, that that's some of the best work in recovery I did was years into sobriety and then having to deal with other addictions and unnumbing from those. And that's when the, the lava came up and out. I mean, it, I don't know if you had panic attacks after you got sober or, or just racing a heartbeat. I, because that's, that was all these emotions coming. You're not numb anymore. Um, it really, a lot comes up, but I remembered, I told my therapist, I was like, you know, I remembered something and I can't figure out if I made it up or if it's a memory. And she was like, well, it's probably a memory. Um, but I remember going to a bathroom at, at like nine years old. And of course I looked like a little boy. Um, and the, there were a couple of other little girls in the bathroom that made me pull my pants down to show them that I was a a little, another little girl, a female. Um, wow. And those, that's something because I guess they were fearful, you know? Um, but I just, I, it's so troublesome to see um, kids who are afraid of something and it turns into anger. And I think, I mean, I think we deal with that as adults too, oh, God, <laughs> obviously. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of that, you know, going down present day. Um, but that's just kind of like the textbook example of, being afraid of something that doesn't matter right. and causing someone else damage because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, why the fuck do we have joint bathrooms anyway? Yeah. Why? I, maybe if there's 85,000 people in a stadium, I can, I can understand just the logistics of it. But otherwise, we shouldn't be shitting two inches from each other. I don't care what your gender is. Yeah. <laughs> For God's sake, let's all have our own private fucking little closet yeah, to go in. Yeah. Maybe that's the silver lining of all of this. Is that <laughs> let's get let's get single single use bathrooms. Yes. Yeah. Um, I tell you, airport bathrooms are there's. Uh, that's where I experience a lot of dysphoria is going in. I will catch myself kind of like pushing, pushing my chest out a little bit so that they see I do have, have breasts because if I'm in a public place, I will usually use the woman's restroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have, I have gotten, you know, Hey, you're not supposed to be in here. <laughs> um, the, the anticipation of that must be awful. It, it's very weird, um, especially when you're just trying to go do your business. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I mean, I know people who present like me who will hold their pee until they go home because it's, you know, they've been through um, 
such awful stuff in public bathrooms. Mm. Uh, I did. I do have a friend who's um, another comedian who who is escorted out of a rest stop in Indiana um, using the women's bathroom, and she identifies as female, and it's just you know uh, regular, just like dyke <laughs> with short hair. It just um, you know, and then was told, well, if you didn't look like this, you know, these things wouldn't happen. Um, I just wish, you know, maybe we slowly are getting to a point where it doesn't matter how people present themselves, you know, um, you know, the the thing that has struck me the most in the last five years, as more people say, I would like they, them pronouns, is I, I realize how many people in history have been stuffing who they authentically are to survive. And and I'm sure to somebody who is probably prejudiced or uh, uh, afraid, they're thinking, oh, it's a big fad now. Everybody's doing it. When in reality, it's, oh, my God, a large percentage of the population has been hiding. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that people are understanding more that you're assigned your assigned biological body doesn't necessarily match how you see yourself, you know, and you don't have to present yourself a certain way and abide by these uh, roles that you're you're put into. Um, the pronouns thing, which is becoming more and more common, um, it's just now I feel like people are are willing to to say, no, I'm going to abandon abandon these boxes of he or she that we've been put in because it doesn't belong to me. Uh, so I don't want you to look at me and uh, assume, you know, it, uh, I really, I think it, it can do so much just kind of abandon, abandoning those pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it has for me. Uh, someone recently was like, you know, I wonder if there is a new term we could come up with, you know, a uh, rather than just they, them, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, just coming up with our own new language. Uh, Cause they, them has, you know, been kind of stuck with just addressing plural people, uh, which I know is why like my parents generation, uh, they have such a hard time with it. It's, it's, I feel a sense of panic when I go to, to use it because it's new. Yeah, and my brain has had fifty-six years of a certain wiring, and there's no resistance in my personality to use it. It's just that that wiring. Absolutely, and my parents are are kind of the same way. Um, uh, But it's plural. (laughs) I don't understand. It's which is, I mean, could there be like a new word we come up with for? just being in between or, or you know, it, that would be interesting. I mean, there is, uh, I think it's pronounced Zay. It's X E. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I don't know. That could be pretty cool. Yeah. Just an entirely new thing. Anything else you'd like to share before we, uh, we wrap up? 
just be kind to each other. <laughs> if there's teenagers listening, I mean, I hope that someone, um, you know, hears something uh, that we've talked about and can kind of identify because mm-hmm. that sometimes it's just such a big thing throughout your day. Um, you know, if you're a teen, gosh, that would be such a big thing for me. Uh, there, there was, after the Columbine shooting, they, somebody was interviewing Marilyn Manson and said, you know, if you could talk to those high school kids uh, that shot all those people, what, what would you tell them? And he said, I wouldn't tell them anything. I'd listen. Wow. And I thought, yeah, I think we all need to do do some some more listening. Yeah, definitely. I would 100% agree. Um, especially teens. Oof, euphoria. You guys got to go to some, those kids got to go to some therapy. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Love that conversation. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, one of our sponsors for today is Lightstream. Roll your high interest credit card payments into just one payment at a lower fixed rate. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates as low as 5.95 APR with auto pay. Uh, I normally don't take ads for financial companies, but um, I asked a lot of questions about what it is that they do, what they provide, and it's really upfront. There's no trickery. Once you lock in a rate with them, it's a fixed rate and it cannot change. The current rate may have changed, but once you lock it in, it doesn't change. And that's huge. There's no fees, no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties. And applying is it's quick and it's easy. You can do it right from your phone too. So for you guys, you can apply now and get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get that discount is to go to lightstream.com slash mental. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash mental. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.50 auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash mental for more information. Another advertiser that uh, we have today is uh, roman.com. Uh, A lot of people are ashamed uh, about having to deal with uh, erectile dysfunction, and uh, I occasionally have to deal with it, and I'm not ashamed. It's it's not my fault that uh, sometimes the equipment needs a little help, and the pills that I get through uh, Roman.com, it's simple, affordable, ironically, cheaper than I could get them through my insurance, and uh, it's simple. You just uh, go do an online visit. Uh, Talk to a doctor, and then if meds are appropriate, they'll get you going. Uh, It's free two-day shipping. Everything's straightforward, simple, and discreet. So just go to GetRoman.com slash mental. Uh, That's GetRoman.com slash mental for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash mental for a free visit to get started. Let's do that a third time. GetRoman.com slash mental. We have some interesting uh, surveys this week some really cool ones um this was filled out by a woman who calls herself brie animal and uh it's an awful moment she writes when i was 10 i was uh i discovered the world of harry potter at the time my life consisted of homeschooling the tumultuous atmosphere there and the one day a week i'd spend at church with the few friends i had it feels pathetic to admit but the books 
were the only thing that I felt made life worth living, and the world J.K. Rowling had created was where I escaped to in my mind whenever life became too unbearable, which was most of the time. Because of the new wave Christian witchcraft scare of 2000, I had to hide my love of Harry Potter from my parents. I would read and reread them over and over at night with flashlights or even nightlights, which greatly damaged my eyesight, just for a few hours of peace and escape by myself after turning out the lights. I borrowed the second book, Chamber of Secrets, from a friend by sneaking it wrapped uh, wrapped in a sweater in my backpack, of course. And I was reading it for the first time. It was coming to the climax when Harry and Ron decided to go down to the chamber to save Ginny from the basilisk. I could not put the book down. I was terrified and excited. Unfortunately, I had trichotillomania, unbeknownst to me at the time, and would pull up my eyebrows and eyelashes whenever I was anxious, never plucking out enough to be too noticeable, though, until that night. When I had finished the book, I looked down at my pillow and saw that it was covered in hairs. After staring at it for a good ten minutes, I made my way in the dark to the bathroom down the hall, steeled myself, and turned on the light. I had maybe twenty hairs in total left on my face. Stunned, I went back to my bed. I calmly told myself the hair would grow back by the morning, just like Harry's had when he'd been given a bad haircut. It was I was magic, too, after all. Needless to say, my face was still bald in the morning. But the silver lining was that I had no more eyebrows or lashes left to pull. So good. So good. Thank you. Thank you for that. This is also an awful moment filled out by Dee Dee, and she writes, My friend was always the sad drunk girl. Oh, my God. Like It's like waiting for a bomb to go off, drinking with somebody whose personality ch- changes, or you don't know if it's going to change. I had a friend in high school. You never knew when it was his switch was going to flip and he was going to get into a fight, and you'd be at a party. And I just remember being at a party one time, and all of a sudden, he's just in a fight, rolling down the stairs at somebody's house. Uh, Anyways, my friend was always the sad drunk girl. A night out almost always ended with her a little too drunk and crying for no apparent reason. When sober, she was level-headed and emotionally stable. Uh, So we signed a lease agreement, and I figured once we moved in together, I'd just make sure to cut her off after the third drink. Right now, people who are in any kind of codependent or Al-Anon or any kind of support group like that are laughing out loud because they identify with the insanity of thinking that you can control somebody else's drinking. Anyway, continuing. Well, crying turned into sobbing. A little too drunk turned into blacking out. In the months leading up to our move-in date, her behavior continued to get worse and worse. She eventually started drinking alone on weeknights and self-harming. We were living together and I was scared shitless. I kept my door open at night and stayed up to listen for the sobs. That was my cue to go in and rescue her from herself. Yeah, how'd how'd that work out? And assure her that life was worth living. A month into us living together, she made a drunken impulse suicide attempt and I had to call the police. She got the care she needed and her family rushed to be by her side. I told my mom about what had happened and she assured me that everything would be okay. My dad, who I don't speak to very often, called me a day or two after that to quote, check in. 
I told him how it was the first time she had done that, and when we signed the lease together, she really only cried when drunk on, on the weekend. All he said to me was, if you knew she was such a crybaby, why'd you go into a lease with her? And, quote, make sure she still pays her half of the rent from the inpatient mental health facility. Oh, my God. Fantastically awfulsome. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Rena. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s. She uh, says she was raised in a stable and safe environment. Never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. Ever since I was little, I can remember being fascinated by certain older girls and women. I always seemed to have someone that I idealized almost to the point of obsession, and I would learn everything about them to try and be like them. I must have felt some degree of shame about this even when I was little because I remember keeping it to myself. To give you some background on my mental health, I developed anorexia in middle school, which then morphed into bulimia by late high school. Depression, excoriation disorder, in parentheses, skin, skin picking, OCD, and perfectionism have all made appearances throughout my life as well. These diagnoses aren't the things I am ashamed to admit, though. Therapy and medication have really helped, and I think I live a pretty balanced, healthy life with enough distance from the more self-destructive behaviors. Depression and social isolation are probably my top two issues right now. What I am ashamed about is that I still find myself becoming obsessed with or fixated on certain women that come into my life. They're always slightly older than me, not peers, and they tend to embody characteristics that I admire. They come across as confident as having their life together. They are married or in a relationship, which I am not, and they have a warm and nurturing vibe. The thing that I am ashamed of is that I go out of my way to get their attention and get so excited when I receive it. Right now, the person I'm obsessed with happens to be my boss. Sometimes when I have contact with her or even see a picture of her on social media when I am not at work, graphic images come to mind. I imagine myself covered in blood, having cut open my wrists, crying in pain, walking towards her and asking for help. There is something so comforting about how I imagine her concerned, alarmed glance, her comforting touch, and her knowing how to handle the situation. The thought of disappointing her or any of these women is intolerable, which feeds into my perfectionism and people-pleasing ways. I would be horrified if she knew what I was thinking and actually distance myself more so that I am careful not to come across as creepy. I look forward to every chance I get to see her naturally in meetings or at lunch. Right now, it is her, but the same thing happened in college and graduate school with professors, older co-workers, etc., I'm ashamed that I care so much about what these women think, of how excited I get by contact with them, and of my fantasies of self-harm and even suicide attempts or being hospitalized for the sake of getting their attention and concern. I do fantasize too at times of self-disclosing about my eating disorder or history with mental health issues, even though there really is not a reason to do so. As I mentioned, depression and social social isolation are my two primary issues right now. The more I sink into depression, the more I tend to withdraw into myself, and it's a vicious cycle. 
I am attracted to men and would love to get married and have a family someday, but I am exhausted by the idea of dating, and it scares me that I have never felt as strongly about a man as I have about these older women, even though it is not in a romantic or sexual way. I don't think it would be healthy to feel the way I feel about them towards a potential partner. I did mention this once in therapy, and the therapist really didn't know what to do with it. That doesn't sound like a very good therapist. Um... Yeah, uh, if any listeners have thoughts or ideas, I'm open to hearing them. I would be interested if others have experienced anything similar. Well, you know, the book that comes to mind is um, uh, Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. And uh, it, it might be a, a, a good place to start. Um, I'm not saying that that... that is absolutely what's going on here, but just kind of that um, enmeshment and the push and pull of fear of intimacy, I, th I think that book would probably turn some light bulbs on in your head. And it sounds to me like deep down, you just want your pain witnessed by somebody, that you're, you're hurting. And uh, I know that probably sounds obvious, but... Um, that's, that is a healthy thing to want. It's the way that we go about having our emotional needs met that is the important thing. And I think that book might help with that. Darkest Secrets. I have a memory from when I was probably five years old. My siblings and I were home and my mom was out. My dad was watching TV in my parents' room. I was so bored that I went in and laid down next to him on the bed, which wasn't uncommon. I wasn't interested in what was on TV, and at some point I remember getting on top of him and straddling him. He had shorts on, and from what I remember, he was just kind of passively laying there while I gyrated a bit until eventually he moved me over. I remember feeling ashamed because I knew I was doing something sort of wrong and testing a limit, but also kind of mad that he wasn't stopping me. That's the only memory I have of anything inappropriate ever happening sexually when I was a kid, and I initiated it, so I don't really know what to make of that. Well, it's up to the parent to set boundaries with, with kids, you know. Kids are going to explore and and push boundaries, so... um but all of this stuff, I think, would be really important for you to talk about with uh, with a therapist, especially one that uh, is is well versed in talking about enmeshment and fear of intimacy and obsessive relationships. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't really allow myself to have powerful sexual fantasies. I think what I imagine and want is, quote, healthy in the sense that it involves my body being honored and connected to someone who loves me deeply and whom I love deeply in return. I think I build it up to be something so sacred that it is out of my reach. I feel a bit ashamed and childish sharing this since I am almost 30 and have very fairy tale like ideas about sex. I worry that it will never happen for me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? People have said that I come across as very independent and, quote, put together. Sometimes I wish I could tell them how scared I am. I'm so scared that I will be alone forever, not because there isn't someone out there who will love me, but because I'm afraid of being loved. 
I'm afraid that my depression will keep sucking me into the black hole of isolation and I will push everyone away. I'm scared of that, but I am more scared to give it up and be vulnerable. It feels much safer in the dark than in the light. What, if anything, do you wish for? Human connection, to experience marriage and motherhood, and to be at peace with myself. Have you shared these things with others? I only shared the part about idealizing older women with one therapist, and he didn't really know what to make of it. I've never talked about the memory that I have had with my dad, that I have with my dad. I've talked to some people about my fears about relationships, but I haven't found much solace in that yet. How do you feel after writing these things down? In some ways, I feel relieved and glad that someone will read this and enter into my experience a bit. In other ways, I am anxious about it going out there. I hope that it does help someone to not feel so alone. Thank you so much for that. You got, you got a lot... A lot going on emotionally, and um, that must feel really, really overwhelming. Um, you know, I've experienced being trapped in my head and being afraid to open up and and get vulnerable, and it's a, it's kind of a prison of our our own making. And um, yeah, getting vulnerable is scary when when we're not used to doing it. This is a happy moment filled out by Ray, and she writes when I. Finally got my self-harm scars on my arm covered with a tattoo with a compass and two flowers and a quote that reads, before you ask which way to go, remember where you have been. Uh, I have always been so hard on myself, feeling I've gotten nowhere in my life and I would just get so angry so I would start cutting. To finally see them gone forever makes me so happy. To feel a fresh start, something that is positive that I see every day. That's beautiful. Thank you for that, Ray. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, Franklin. And she writes, I realized today that the fact that my dad never digs deeper with me, never asks further questions about my life or abuse because they're painful and he's not capable of that emotional engagement. I asked the questions. Even though that behavior on his part makes me feel invisible, I can still choose to see me. I count, my pain matters, and I exist because I choose to acknowledge and take myself seriously. What That is so awesome, and that is like the beginning of, of personal growth as we stop going to the well for water when, you know, our track record is that it's dry every time. That's kind of similar to that person who thought they could could control somebody else's drinking thinking that we can get somebody to open up emotionally to us is it's a, a a form of insanity there's nothing wrong with making an attempt but just hammering away and thinking that we can change somebody is uh it's it's so crazy making these are some loves filled out by uh, one of our guests, Tony M. He's a great guest and super nice guy. And he writes, I love writing loves for this survey because it reminds me that not everything is as bleak as my brain tells me it is. I love the feeling when I use a skill or strategy I learned in therapy to change how I approach a situation and know that I made a better, healthier choice. I love the smell of a summer rain on warm pavement. Oh, I love that smell too. I love sitting in a peaceful garden and taking in the sights, smells, and sounds. Oh, I got one. 
I love when I'm skating Gracie, my dog, and we get to a a stretch of fresh pavement that is like glass. And I don't have to worry about hitting stones or keeping my balance. Oh, I love that. I love when I witness nature taking its course around me, like watching a squirrel running in grass or along a tree branch. I love the feeling when my body settles into a groove on a long run. I love the feeling of accomplishment after investing many hours in a project or hobby. I love being able to teach a new skill to someone else. I love when my kids cite something I said as a source of wisdom or insight. I love the feeling of being needed when a friend or colleague reaches out to me for help. Oh, those are beautiful. Thank you, Tony. If you haven't listened to his episode, that's a really, really good one, too. It's about emotional uh, incest, covert incest, which is a form of incest that's every bit as damaging as overt incest, but it kind of flies below the radar. Uh, You know, unnecessary nudity, no locks on the bathrooms, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, oversharing about sexuality. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Finding My Family. He uh, is in his 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, identifies as straight, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts, but he doesn't specify what. Uh, He's been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, my parents would regularly discipline physically, most commonly my mother pulling my hair. She did it in public where it was made very clear that I shouldn't make any noise to tip other people off. And at home, even when teaching me the piano, when I argued or made a mistake. My dad was more passive, but there were spankings, etc. Any positive experiences with them? My parents are good people, even though very flawed. We were raised in a great town and they paid for college. And when things were going well and we weren't acting up, they were very supportive. Parents should be supportive regardless of things, and parents paying for things is not does not equal emotional support. Um, you know, parents can even reprimand and give kids consequences, but still give them unconditional love. And um, it sadly, that's a very high bar for our society, but that's a baseline need that kids kids need darkest thoughts self-loathing and i've thought about self-harm darkest secrets it's not completely a secret most people uh don't know but i have lost relationships because of it when i was 15 and my sister was 11 we regularly engaged in sexual behavior mostly kissing and touching my father found out and told me i was ruining her childhood that she was just a kid etc i was regularly made fun of and made to feel ashamed of my body told that no one would love me and automatically believed him still part of me does recently my sister who until now has been involved in my involved in my wife and my life, I'm not sure what that means about, um, decided to use what we consensually did to try and hurt me, and my dad has taken her side. He has told me that if my wife found out 
that she would never look at me the same again. I told her and she was nothing but supportive. And today, when I told him that some of the things he said upset me, he said that I was a scumbag and although I should be begging for forgiveness, um, and in the next sentence that nothing would make it better. I have hated myself for so long about this, and it's so hard to believe that I'm not a horrible person. I was confused and scared and would never imagine doing anything like that again. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. BDSM, fantasizing about myself and my wife with other people. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I've told my sister I am sorry, and if I wasn't afraid of her going after my family, we were expecting a child soon, I would express that I'm upset. She's tried to use this to hurt me. Um, you know, things like this, I, I think, are really complicated because there's there's the past and then there's the present. And the age difference between you and your sister when when that was happening was pretty big. Four years is pretty big, uh, especially when it's a 15-year-old and an 11-year-old. And I'm not doing that to shame you. I'm doing, I'm doing that to put yourself in your sister's shoes and and help empathize with her uh, the the weight of of what it probably felt like. To, to her. And there is a power imbalance between a 15-year-old and an 11-year-old. And, you know, both of you were kids. And this isn't about shaming you or, you know, uh, condemning you today. It's about exploring avenues to try to help your sister heal if possible. Um, you know, put your dad out of the situation for a minute. You know, it, it's, it's, I, I don't know if there's a way the that he's going to be able to calm down enough to have a healthy conversation about this. But what might be healthy would be to go, if your sister is game, maybe to go to joint therapy with her and to have somebody who's neutral and um, informed and educated about these complicated situations to help you guys walk through your feelings because it is possible that you and your and your sister could repair your relationship. And um, writing it off as your sister just wanting to hurt you is minimizing what she's been through. And, you know, you have your own pain and your own issues. And that's why this is, this is so complicated. But um, relationships are complicated, man, especially when there's... When there's pain and and wounds. Anyway, I hope that made made sense. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want a relationship with my family where I can be authentic, share my feelings without being judged, and feel love in ways other than having things bought for me. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, my wife is the strongest person in my life and has helped me so much. How do you feel after writing these things down? Okay, although I'm wishing I could express myself better and worried that I'm making excuses for my past behavior. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's not worth hiding things you're ashamed of. People who love you still will. Thank you for that. Thank you for going deep in that and talking about stuff that's that, um, that a lot of people um, wouldn't want to talk about. Uh, it's hard to own... Uh, our pasts if we've if we've hurt people 
and and there's still shame there. Um, but thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Fun, fun Guy Living. I'm having some health issues, which leads to me having to stay home. I'm battling depression, which doesn't make it easier when I'm stuck at home. Furthermore, I'm vulnerable to phobias and especially agoraphobia. All three things had to be overcome at once when last night I decided to have a walk outside for the first time in a week, just to walk around the block. I prepared for it all day, pumping myself up and battling the negative thoughts. During the walk, my heart was racing, my breathing irregular, and I became extremely tense. But I had made it through. I was proud. But I didn't have anyone to tell, because I would first have to tell everyone that I'm doing extremely shitty before I can tell them that this little victory is what got me through the day. I was happy, alone, and sad as hell, because I had nobody to share it with. Oh, that is an awfulsome moment, but so bittersweet, man. Uh... Buddy, if I was there, I'd have fucking high-fived you as you as you got back to the house. Thank you for that. I've never experienced agoraphobia, so I can't imagine what that's like. I do know what it's like to not want to leave the house, but not to be terrified of, of leaving the house. And then finally, these are some loves filled out by a woman who calls herself MC Ride. And she writes, I love cloudy, dark, cozy days when I get to layer on clothing and go outside or have a warm drink in a robe. I love watching my pets being happy or just generally cute. I love the comfort I get from petting their soft fur and knowing they can't judge me like people do. I love riding my bicycle and listening to music, feeling the wind on my face and looking at the trees around me. I, I was skating Gracie today. There's a, a local college near us and the pavement's really smooth there. And I just started taking her through there recently. And I think I shared about this last week. There's tons of squirrels and and so many students walking around with their faces in their phones. And there's some really beautiful trees around there and it's fall and I just wanted to yell look at the trees you guys are missing out and I didn't want to be that old guy starts telling them how I had to walk eight miles to school it was a it was a mile um I love the feeling of peace I get when I'm able to be grounded in the moment I love that I'm able to be myself around my boyfriend I love creepy, surreal, emotionally raw art and music that makes me feel like I'm in a dream. Oh, that's a beautiful one. I love cheesy Halloween decor. Here, I think you're on, on your own on that one. Uh, I love reading a quote from a book or hearing a lyric in a song and having another person put into words what I've been feeling or thinking for so long. Uh, Ken Burns has a new uh, documentary series on country music, and I'm not necessarily a huge fan of country music. I like some of it, um, but it's a great, great documentary series, and uh, I've only got one episode left, but I've been learning so much about the history of country music and being introduced to artists whose names I had heard, but I'd never heard some of their best songs. And uh, Dolly Parton is, uh, I'd never heard the song Jolene. And I'm like, oh my, I've probably listened to it 50 times since I I heard it on the documentary. It is, wow. Some of the songs she wrote were fucking 
amazing. She was also the person that wrote the uh, song that Whitney Houston covered, uh, I Will Always Love You, beautiful song. And they they go into the story behind it, um, how she wrote it for the person uh, that she had a business relationship with and um, how she needed to leave. Um, I love trying new things just to see what it brings me. And I love when I let go and cry in front of people I feel safe with. Oh, that's the best. You saved the best for last. My support group meeting last night, there were a couple of people who got emotional during their shares. And man, that's, that is just the best. That is, it's, it's like seeing uh, a wound heal in, in real time. And it's funny because when we're the ones that are crying, we're thinking, oh my God, stop crying. This is so embarrassing. But when we see somebody else doing it and getting vulnerable, it's such a great thing to to witness and then to be able to support them afterwards and go up to them and say, thank you. Thank you for what you said. Thank you for your vulnerability. And they're always surprised because they're like, really? I felt like a mess. I feel like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you're you're not alone. You're not alone. Uh, so many of us feel that way, especially this time of year. And just hang in there and be try to be good to yourself. If you're tired, take a nap. If you're hungry, eat. <laughs> if you need a break, take a break. Uh, it's so easy to just be the taskmaster master and just uh, flog ourselves and tell ourselves we're lazy. I've been doing that a lot this week. And... Uh, it's it's uh, it's hard. It's hard to be nice to ourselves. It's really hard. Um, so just never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.